0: Engage and Equip, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah. I'm on staff here at High Point Church, and I'm joined today by our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. Say hello to the people. So today we have a special podcast. We are revisiting the content from the book Substance that Nick wrote and published in 2017, and we did a sermon series in 2017 that fall, following it, and released some other content related to it, and we wanted to back and review that content so it didn't get lost. Um, Nick, can you tell us just briefly why you thought it was important to come back and review this right now?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, when uh, the, the book Substance was designed to um, kind of like encapsulate or summarize to, to make things as simple as possible, but not simpler, so that people could really understand what we were doing as a church and as Christians in the world and and also the issues that I was trying to help us grapple with um, are only maybe slightly better and in cultural terms probably worse so I feel like it's still what I want to say four years later and might be what I want to say 20 years from now mm-hmm. you know sure. because I've, I'm just trying to summarize uh, I'm just trying to summarize the Jesus message
0: you know right yeah, I was in preparation for the podcast. I was looking back through um the start of this book and you talked about how you like you didn't really want to write this book because you're so averse to like this is the thing you need to do to like solve your spiritual problems. And there are so many of these books of um all these different solutions that if you would just do this everything would be fine. Um but you said you were reflecting on like just over the course of a few years, you just felt like this is what jesus said that you've you've got to overcome worldliness, you've got to put it aside um, yeah
1: yeah what I was finding was that the direct approach wasn't working,
0: mm-hmm. like you know
1: if to just preach the bible it it turned out that like what it what had happened was that some of the language surrounding um spiritual the spiritual pursuit of godliness that had to do with abdication or pulling back from sin. Mm -hmm. Right. Which was, which had been mainly a focus of fundamentalist and conservative evangelical Christians. So like people on the more liberal side of things, both in evangelicalism and, and who in liberal Christians were focusing on engagement for like the last 40 or 50 years. Like how do we get more involved in the world around us? Right. Which in some ways is a really good pursuit, but that was the main emphasis of their thinking. What happened is, is that a lot of people within that realm of evangelicalism, became increasingly more emotionally uncomfortable with the kind of language being used by fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals, which tended to revolve around our separateness from the world as Christians Mm -hmm. and how there's a certain kind of unhealthy enmeshment that happens where we enter into the dysfunctions of the world and of sin such that we become worldlings rather than godly ambassadors sent to the world for its good. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, the, so just to even to say the word worldliness or the world, which is a phrase used in the Bible in numerous places and is central to the Bible's themes, people just had kind of an ick reaction to it. And they assumed that they were more sophisticated than that problem assumed. Mm-hmm. And what I found was, is that in actual pastoral practice, no one is. In mm-hmm. fact, people are way more immersed in Worldliness and its detrimental effects than they dare to dream.
0: Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the title, the subtitle of the book is Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor. And throughout the book, you connect um, ungodliness and worldliness to the image of vapor and godliness and strength to the image of an oak. So, right. why do you connect godliness with strength and weakness with worldliness?
1: The main reason is that people aren't people are too worldly to be interested in godliness. Hmm. So what they're really interested in is their life working, them having psychological health, them having good relationships, essentially things that can be reduced to functional commodities or services. And so to say to somebody, "Hey, here's this great thing Jesus called us to. It's called godliness." What people hear is um, self righteous super religion hmm. that is um, actually not godly or loving or caring or deep or wise or strong, but instead a kind of brittle legalism that they may have encountered in people who are on uh, on the hyper conservative or hyper-fundamentalist and of of Christianity where they're they're fighting against worldliness, but like the New Testament Sadducees, they've reconstructed a fake righteousness that is a set of rules that they live by. And when you live by those kinds of rules, you become just as brittle as somebody who is lost in worldliness because of the same basic dynamic Mm -hmm. you've created a false human created spirituality that's supposed to transform you that doesn't and then you end up not transformed right Mm -hmm. so um so what what i recognized we needed to do is to like sort of figure out how to help people who are averse to the language of worldliness to realize and accept it was their main problem Mm -hmm. and pursue a solution to it and so I started to develop that in counseling sessions with
0: right. people. So what would that look like, for example, in a counseling session where people would be describing some issues in their life and you were identifying, you know what, I think the underlying thing is really this. Can you give an example of a case that we might not connect those two intuitively?
1: Um, yeah. So for example, um, it's pretty normal in the present context for people to say that, all the religious stuff that they're doing isn't working. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, you know, I come to church and I just don't feel like I'm connecting with God or I read the Bible and it doesn't speak to me at all. And I pray and I feel like I'm talking to the ceiling and so on. And then when they they try to obey God, they find that it's exhausting, right? And then they also find that like at key moments, they don't act very godly. Like they get in an argument with their spouse and instead of having a productive discussion, they end up having a petty quarrel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and, you know, they'll say to me, there's like, you know, like, Nick, if this the Christ, this Jesus stuff, it just doesn't work, right? When people start saying that, when they say that the divine and living God who is the head of the church and who has given his powerful spirit to regenerate the hearts of men, that that doesn't work. It's a tip off that it's not that it doesn't work. It's that they're not really in it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, but they think they are. So how did that happen? Mm-hmm right? How is it that they, they believe in Jesus and they believe in Jesus stuff, but there is n- the the powerful life of Jesus is not operating them. And the answer yeah. is because they have a second religion too. And that mm-hmm. religion is choking their first one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So over the course of about five years, I started writing down the kinds of things people would say to me. Sometimes non-Christians, but I focused more on Christians, right? Why did Christianity, not, quote, not work for them?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I, I pursued it, not from it, like a a philosophical perspective, but I started by pursuing it by a pragmatic perspective, like, like what isn't working? And then I started pursuing that answers to that from a psychological perspective. How are human beings thinking and feeling and developing and being so that they are experiencing these pragmatic problems, right? And then I reverse engineered that to say, okay, so what are the symptoms that I'm hearing them say? And I made a list of those symptoms. Then I went to the Bible and I looked for those symptoms in the Bible and they were everywhere whenever worldliness was discussed. Hmm. And so in numerous places in the Bible, Jesus says, Hey, you might feel like this. And you're like, Oh, people feel like that. And they're like, how do people feel like that? And he says, this is what's going on. And in every case, it's, you're in love with the world. Hmm. You have a second religion that's competing with Jesus. You are allowing thorns and thistles to grow up around the good plant of the gospel and choke it out and make it fruitless and so on. Mm-hmm. And when you put all those together, you end up with a very compelling symptom list that I would then start reading to people. And it's on like just the very beginning of the book where I go, people. I, I ask people, do you feel like emotionally choked and smothered in your faith? Do you feel more fearful, anxious, or worried than you feel like you should as a Christian? Do you ever, do you feel resentful or really frustrated with God about what he demands of you or the faith? Do you feel worn out, fragile, or ready to explode? do you crave novelty delicacy are you very distractable i go through a lot of these kinds of things and mm-hmm. and i've had people accuse me of being a prophet or <laughs> you know like you know or i've seen people just not i've seen people burst into tears yeah um but usually i get some kind of reaction from people and, and it's not because i'm brilliant or anything it's just because it's right there on the page in black and white um it's i mean it's there for everybody to see but we just have this incredible ability to ignore it to not see it in a kind of passive spiritual willfulness that Romans one calls. um, I can't think of the word right now. We just, we we intentionally subvert the truth. Right. We hide it.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, In the first section of the book, you describe this, you know, the concept of worldliness and you dedicate the whole chapter to saying goodbye to it. So why do, you, why do you use this language of goodbye, and why does it need a whole chapter?
1: So there's a couple reasons for that. The first is, is that um, because Christian faith is rooted in repentance and faith, there is no way to get to the next step without being at that first one. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think it was Martin Luther who said, all of life is repentance. And what he meant by that was not like, you're just always wrong and repenting, but just kind of like the way you move forward in almost every case is recognizing how in worldliness you have contradicted God in your idolatry. And you start with admitting you were wrong about that.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: only in that state of humility where you're like, oh, I I was wrong about that. I'm I'm sorry. Can you move forward? And so there's this point that has to happen where um, the initial passion of faith where you recognize God cares about you and you can be free from sin and all those sorts of things that has to heat you up enough to sort of like melt the heart of stone so that you can be poured out in an action of surrender without surrender, like saying, not my will, but yours be done. Like, I am not in charge of what the universe means. Hmm. I'm in charge of my life because I'm a steward of my life. We'll get to that later. But I am not, I don't determine what's true and false. I don't determine what's good and evil. I don't determine what's beautiful and ugly. These are rooted in the nature of creation. And I have to submit to them as realities larger than myself that I have to learn to relate to. I mean, Mm -hmm. in some ways, it's similar to the concept of if you marry somebody, your job is not primarily to change them, but to understand them. Hmm. And so then you find your place in relating to what they are. Right And over time, they might change, and over time, you're going to change, but for the most part, your job is not mainly to change them, but to relate to them
2: mm-hmm.
1: we are we are submissive creatures to reality, fundamental to godliness is first recognizing what's really there and responding to it and so um part of part of overcoming worldliness is is accepting that you are infected with it accepting that it's affected you affecting uh, accepting that a lot of the the dynamics of your heart and how you feel about things are like are twisted by the dynamics of worldliness. And until you say this will have me no longer, Mm. like you have to leave it like a toxic relationship that you've been living with and cohabiting with, um, for a long time Mm -hmm. and that you thought was really exciting and sexy and fantastic and uh, self affirming and all that. And now you realize it is a dysfunctional, horrific mess because of all the things you found exciting to begin with. And you have to break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend Mm -hmm. forever. And without that kind of really decisive transformation, it can't you can't get anywhere. And you can see this all through Christian faith, that Christian faith is this lifelong pursuit of God, but it starts with conversion, right? This kind of like turning from and turning to, taking on a new identity, putting on the name of Christ, being baptized, all of those dynamics, experiencing the new birth, being born again, having the heart of stone taken out and having the heart of flesh being put in by the work of the Spirit, no longer living by the, the law of the Spirit of death, but but living by the law of the Spirit of life. Like all of these things are... Metaphors for a literal reality that there has to be a profound turning Mm -hmm. and rejecting worldliness is like that. It's like a second conversion. It has to be a 180 degree complete inversion of the direction of your life
2: away Mm -hmm. from
1: the world and toward God. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you're going to make it. And if you don't, you're not going to get anywhere. You're Mm -hmm. just going to talk, talk. You're going to go to church. You're going to say things. You're going to try to be disciplined, but it's never going to go anywhere.
0: Yeah. And my own... Experience leads me to suspect that that's not a one-time decision.
1: Correct. <laughs> but,
0: yeah. That this is, I mean, it's a daily, sometimes hourly decision, recommitment to pursue the one and forsake the other.
1: Yeah. I mean, in in uh, the English-speaking world, um, the Anglophiles used to refer to action novels as romance novels. Hmm. So C.S. Lewis, in one, of his book, one of his books, refers to... The Three Musketeers as a romance novel, Hmm. which I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't see how that's a romance novel, right? But it, to him, the adventure, like in that way of talking, the adventure is romantic. Hmm. And so in that sense, um, escaping worldliness is like a romance. It has this continual action, like the sequence of actions of like things that you do in which a lot hangs in the balance and the nature of the relationship and everything Hangs in the balance as to whether or not you can continually reaffirm it necessary to get to where you need to go,
0: mm-hmm. and in that
1: sense, escaping worldness and pursuing godliness is a romance. Mm-hmm. It is full of the kinds of decisions that either renew or don't renew a relationship, mm-hmm. a direction, a conquest, a, a you know, a, a pursuit.
0: Yeah, right? I mean, you used in describing that you're using the word um, what word using. Submission. I think you use the word yeah. submission several times and you also yeah. use the word surrender in the book. And these aren't two words that um, I guess it would be an understatement to say are out of vogue right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Mainly, I think our culture has shifted toward language of like empowerment, self-realization, um, mm-hmm. like taking control of your life. So how do we reconcile this idea of surrender and submission without... Uh, I think the worldly reaction to that would be, like, you're not living your authentic self, or you're not um, living into your reality. How should we view that as Christians?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's a podcast in itself, I would say. I think the position that the Bible takes on this again and again is, you have to start with the sort of creature you are, not with the ideology you want to hold. So if you want to act like you're a God and that therefore you should be self-defined and therefore you have to live your truth, blah, 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 you can, but it's it's based on a premise about what a human being is that's false, Mm -hmm. right? Human beings are made in the image of God, but we're profoundly dependent beings and we're responsive by nature. So in the Bible, for example, it says human beings are going to worship something. Even if you worship yourself, still that sense of yourself is going to get defined by other things and that those are the things you are, you are. Worshipping by worshiping yourself.
0: And by and not so, acknowledging and understanding them, you're constantly fighting against them and it, it's self-defeating.
1: Yeah. And also one of the reasons why you can't define yourself from yourself is because the the longing of your heart is more substantial than anything you could become. Hmm. So you can't ever be big enough for yourself.
2: Hmm.
1: Does that make sense? Like like we're made to long for and want God. God is much bigger than us.
0: You so if we try to stuff ourselves...
1: Right in the God-shaped hole, it turns out we're, we're not only not shaped like God, but we're not nearly big enough.
2: Hmm. And so
1: um, the more we come to our senses, the more we'll find that worshiping ourselves is boring hmm. and anxiety producing, which is one of the worst combinations that there can be to be bored and anxious at the same time. <laughs> right. But you know, we're not enough for ourselves, so we should be anxious. And we're also not as interesting as the infinite God. We should be bored. We are both boring. And if we are the sovereign one, then we should be anxious, Mm -hmm. right? It is in finding our submission to the greater God who sets us free to do what's good Mm -hmm. that we have like an enormous amount of meaning, an enormous amount of um, romance, an enormous amount of possibility, an enormous amount of um, anxiety reducing presence, even though we're in the midst of exciting things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of escaping godliness is realizing that we... um, we can pursue the kingdom of God. We can, um, like, a per- like the, the, the man who finds an enormous treasure in a field. When he, I mean, he's probably going out there to farm. Mm-hmm. And then he got interrupted by something much more exciting, right? And mm-hmm. that's, what, that's how we're supposed to experience God. When right. we understand the glory of Christ is that we went out to farm. We have a hoe in our hands. We're about to turn over some dirt, see if we can grow a little wheat. And we find jewels.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're
1: like, oh, well, that's different. you know, And that's much more exciting.
0: This is unrelated, but did you hear the story recently? Some um fishermen were out and they saw a sperm whale carcass and they like cut it open and found over a million dollars worth of like amber stuff in it. No. Yeah. It, like totally transformed their family's lives forever. They were Yemenese fishermen. So like, you can imagine like the standard of living that they had before and after yeah. finding the sperm whale carcass. It's a different kind of treasure in they the field. They found it like in
1: open water or like yeah. on shore.
0: No, just an open water, and they like hauled it back to shore and cut it open. They're like, mm, I wonder if there's some amber in there, and ta-da.
1: That's weird. Yeah, you, you have crazy stuff in shark and whale stomachs.
0: <laughs> so know? anyway, treasure in a field, treasure in a sperm whale carcass in anyway. some
1: ways that's like even a better metaphor but jesus probably didn't use it because it wouldn't have connected with as many people <laughs> but like to think of how nasty that must have been
0: right you to have dig to into that you have to carcass. like know to look for it and you yeah. have to like get dirty to do it yeah they said oh, it man, smelled terrible it like,
1: oh yeah. yeah oh man if you <laughs> haven't dug through rotten fish man you haven't <laughs> lived and whales are particularly bad
0: yeah. Just bloated sitting out there anyway. Yeah.
1: Cause it's like a different kind of flesh, you know, it's like more of a, a I mean, meaty, like muscular flesh than fish. And Oh man. I feel like
0: this is one of the cases where you're like, you know, and I'm like, no, I really, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the middle section of your book, you describe what you call the four marks of substance, which we could also call like four Christian practices or pursuits that you say are essential for becoming substantive, Mm -hmm. um, which is what we need in order to cast off worldliness and like have the stability and freedom in Christ. Um, So you list them as sacrificial love, the mind of Christ, walking in virtuous freedom, and keeping in step with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So most of those seem kind of intuitive maybe, but that third one, especially walking in virtuous freedom, I feel like maybe our intuitions could mislead us in like misunderstanding it. Can you clarify what you mean by virtuous freedom?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that human beings really desire is freedom. That is a certain amount of self-determination. One of the reasons why the idea of like being yourself, living your truth, that kind of stuff is very alluring to human beings is because we do know we're supposed to have kind of an independent identity. We're supposed to have a self. We're supposed to like make choices and be someone. Um, but at the same time, freedom unmoored from what it's supposed to be for is incredibly destructive. And most people have experienced that on one level or another, that like freedom is terrible. And also freedom is one of our greatest longings. Mm-hmm. And and what, what, what the Lord, what God teaches is essentially is, is that, um, he has made us for a certain kind of freedom. That is, if we live out what we're meant to be made in God's image, right, that's called godliness. And when we live that out, we can be set entirely free, have no law around us, and we can actually do what we will to do. That is, what we're acting in accord with what we desire, but our desires have also come in line with what's good, such that we will behave freely and virtuously, right? And that is, is the sweet spot of human flourishing the real good being rightly related to God being loving towards other people because you're acting in their true good and all of those things. And so only when a human being is both virtuous and free mm. does that happen. And, mm. um, and that's really difficult. That's ve- that's way harder than coming up with rules to follow.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's way harder than deciding all the rules are stupid because you should be able to do what you want. Right you know, or that you can just invent a morality all by yourself Mm -hmm. and live somewhat according to it and think that therefore you're a good person. All of those are dead ends when you pursue them either in practice or even if you pursue them logically, they break down. Mm -hmm. And so this idea, so the the reason I have that in the book, why it's so important is that is the thing that so marks the like long-term stability of Christian character. The other ones you can talk about, but you can do them in like fits and starts, Hmm. What you need is not somebody who can be good once, but who can be good every day, all the time, throughout their lives as a stable person of a specific kind of character. Mm -hmm. And that's what it means to be godly or holy. And so understanding what it means to be both virtuous and free, to have all the freedom God has given us and to use it to do what it's for, which is to do the good, um, is like it's fundamental to understand what it means to be a believer. And to do that, you will you need the mind of Christ to know what the richest thing is. Right. Like in terms of the specific dynamics of your life, you have to learn to keep in step with the spirit, and a big portion of what that is going to be is to live in sacrificial love. But the thing that sustains it day in and day out and makes you makes you um reliable and strong like an oak is this idea that you you've you've come to be formed in virtue and so can actually bear freedom. Yeah. The problem for most human beings is we are not strong enough in the prerequisites of freedom to be free, but we want to be free and we don't want to build the prerequisites of freedom. So I was, I was playing ping pong with my, my eight, nine-year-old daughter. We got our ping pong paddle for Christmas. Her brother's really into ping pong and she wants to be good at ping pong right now. <laughs> sure. She wants to win right now. And she wants me to tell her she's really good at ping pong right now. And she's terrible. She can't keep the ball on the table like hardly at all. Right. She wants the thing without winning it. And the thing about freedom is is that freedom isn't just given. Freedom is something that we deserve to be respected by others as a state of of our status. But we have to win the capacity to wield it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a 30-pound sword. You know, like somebody can freely give you the sword and you can try to fight people with it. But you actually have to, in terms of strength and skill, grow up into wielding that weapon.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And freedom is kind of like that.
0: Yeah, well, I don't remember if it was in substance or if it was in blueprint or maybe just a sermon illustration. But I remember at some point us discussing like the like the training montage in all of the movies. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that's in
1: substance. It's in the intro to that chapter. Yeah,
0: where it's like we all love seeing the champion and movies like dramatize the preparation and training process. But in reality, it's extremely boring to just keep Mm -hmm. punching that bag over and over and over and running up the steps. It's just like, it's not glamorous. It's not exciting. It's not. um, And even when you describe the outcome, the goal of just like being good every day, Mm -hmm. that, that sounds more hellish to a lot of people like when we have developed a taste yeah. for worldliness we're like oh you have to be good all the time you can't even yeah. be a little bit bad sometimes where's the fun in that you know um yeah but it
1: yeah i i yeah i totally yeah and part of the thing too is in those movies is that the montage that they they narrow down to like 35 seconds if you if you actually played out the real timeline of the movie mm-hmm. that training is like eight tenths of the film Right you know, but they shorten it because it's boring. So it's not part of the movie.
0: Right. You know? um, in the first of those four marks in sacrificial love, um, one of the main things you discuss is stewardship. So when we went through this as a church, this was kind of a new concept for a lot of people. It's kind of an archaic thing that we don't really um, deal with in our lives today. Can you go over that concept again for us?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Steward is a little like pastor. It's one of those old Anglo-Saxon words that we don't use as much now, but a steward is different than a servant in that in the newer translations of the Bible, it's often translated manager. But manager is ambiguous too because some managers have a lot of leeway and freedom to make decisions, and others have almost none.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so when you think of a manager, it's like they're basically taking instructions and trying to make sure that employees are doing those instructions, right? Right,
0: and they're always and like, like, "There's, there's nothing not... I can do." I, yeah. Like,
1: yeah, I'm yeah, doing and what so... I'm told. Right. And so I'm following store policy, but like uh, in, but what a steward is in the Bible is somebody who is in management of something that is they don't own it, but they're a hundred percent in charge of it. And in most cases, when Jesus is talking about this in a parable, the master is not in the, in the locale. They've gone on a journey. They're far away. They don't live there. They're not close by. And so this, the steward is a hundred percent in charge. The master isn't even there. And so even though they don't own it, they're 100% in charge. And that's what stewardship is like. In our lives, everything that we have is a gift from God. Nothing in that sense is ultimately ours,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And yet we're in charge of everything in our life. We are the steward. Mm-hmm. And I think when people begin to really understand that, that they're not just stewards of their money or their time, but I mean, they're literally stewards of everything, all their gifts, um, their future, their health, you know, they're, that, that's in their hands. It doesn't belong to them. So they have a responsibility for how they use it. Mm-hmm. They're to use it for the good, but they also are hundred percent charge that is they're supposed to just dis- make decisions and be mature and exert um virtuous freedom you know so they, they, is- sh- they need sorry go ahead. no go ahead they need to know what the owner of the thing really wants hmm. but but they but that's but that's not super specific like like a farmer wants the farm to produce produce you know and and animals but but it's the steward that decides how many pigs we're going to grow and like what cows and where do we plant the wheat and all of the details of strategy and structure and like how it's all going to be done that's all left to the steward
2: Hmm. you know
1: Um, if you think about how jesus set up the church the jesus and the apostles they're like you gotta have elders you gotta have like a plurality of leadership and deacons are good there should be some preaching like like there's not like a very regimented clear i mean that's one of the reasons why you can have like orthodox coptic christian churches and like strange pentecostal churches and they're all churches you know like they're all kind of within the parameters Mm
0: -hmm. but they're
1: very different because the stewards are different
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know what they're trying to do is different but they're still trying to follow what the master wants
0: and they i mean it it takes so many different forms culturally across the world there are so many different ways to follow that it's a there's a framework there but how to flesh it out it leaves a lot of liberty
1: yeah yeah and so the this idea that like if i believe in jesus 100% see there's some people that believe that if i believe in jesus like 15% intensity then i'll have 85% control of my life
2: mm-hmm. but if
1: i believe in jesus 100% jesus will have 100% control of everything in my life and it'll be terrible
2: mm-hmm. and that's
1: not really how it works at all mm-hmm. when jesus has 100% control of your life that means you pursue in the mind of Christ what his will is, but his will is pretty broad. It still leaves an incredible number of decisions open to you mm-hmm. within the good, right? And so then you, ha- you have to make all those decisions,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: Which, which means like, like, for example, like you might say, okay, the normative thing is for me to form a family, though singleness is open to me. Well, that doesn't make any decisions for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you want to get married, you can. If you want to stay single, you can. If you stay single, you use it for what God wants you to. If you get married, you use it for what God wants you to. Mm-hmm. To get married, you can choose whoever's willing to marry you from among those people, right? Any of those people. And so, like, you're like, I always get frustrated with Christians who are like, well, I don't I don't know if God told me to marry this person. Well, that that's not how God talks. Mm-hmm. God told you to marry a believer. And if you marry them, what your responsibilities are and what the benefits are and all that. Now it's up to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if then if you marry that person, and it turns out to be difficult. Don't blame God. I mean, you chose that person. Now you got to figure out how to love them and, and they have to figure out how to love you. Mm-hmm. So. So, submitting ourselves to God 100% with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength does not, in any sense, put us in a position where God is making all of our decisions. In some ways, what it does is it frees us from the world and worldliness and our weakness and our sin, making all our decisions for us, like we're, you know, like just dogs, like trying to find a place to lick more bacon. And like it makes us deeper, like more structured individuals where we care about a larger will relative to reality, God's will, and we enter into a much bigger world in which much more more decisions and much more consequential decisions are being made in our lives and in how we engage with other people and in the world so that in, in some ways you have more freedom. There's more questions open to you. There's more decisions to be made. And, and the decisions are much more consequential. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the what I have found is that among mature Christians or Christians really committed to God, they do not feel God is controlling their lives or that they don't get to make decisions. They struggle with how much meaning there is, how many difficult decisions, how terribly important they are and how much it's like, it's like it's too much meaning. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: In fact, I've seen some Christian teenagers walk away from the faith, at least temporarily because they look at the the life that they've been told they have in Christ. In some ways it's good, but in some ways they're so angry because they don't want their life to mean so much. Mm
2: -hmm. They
1: want it to be like simpler, easier, whatever. And so they walk away from the faith and they get involved in really vacuous relationships because they just don't want all the pressure of it. And I I understand that. I think that there is a way in the grace of God to not feel like you're under a lot of pressure, but I understand that misunderstanding because Mm -hmm. it's easy to misunderstand the faith to be too consequential. Right. You know?
0: So how does this, I mean, stewardship is within the heading of sacrificial love. So how is stewardship related to love?
1: I think the, I think the main way is because it, stewardship helps is is, stewardship is the context in which we determine what to do right if love is a commitment of the will and action to the true good of another person then there are decisions that have to be made and what you're exerting towards the other person is some battery of resources that you're privy to right Mm -hmm. and so you're a steward you're basically saying i have this stuff in my hands And I'm going to use it in a particular kind of way to help others, to really love others, to act in their true good. Now, then the question is, well, what is that? Right? Right. It's it's going to be sacrificial. That means you're going to pay a cost that they're not going to pay. That's Mm -hmm. what love requires. And it's going to be loving. It's going to be in the true good of another person. But that doesn't tell you much. Exactly what you could do could be like an incredible array of different things. And that's the beauty of stewardship and Mm -hmm. the beauty of love is that it it doesn't... Sometimes it dictates one thing, but oftentimes it leaves room for a lot of human creativity. Mm You know, And that's why, in in some ways, that's how we experience the romance of it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Otherwise, you're just left with lust to make things exciting.
0: Yeah. Um, Looking at the fourth mark, keeping in step with the spirit. So this is one of those things we can kind of look at and be like, oh, yeah, I get what that means. But it can also feel a little like mystical, vague, you know, like what, what do you, what do you see as scriptures? Like, what does it mean to keep in step with the spirit and how do we do it? The, the,
1: the one place in the book of Ephesians where that, that like subverses use that phrase um, is in contrast to getting drunk with wine. And that's not meant to say that like alcohol is bad or wine is bad. It's to say that like, when you drink a bunch of wine, there is a spirit that comes over you. And I don't think in this case it literally means like a demonic spirit. I just mean sure. that like, like there's a, there is a way of being that comes over you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And generally speaking, when you drink a bunch of wine, you lose some inhibition and you don't really care what the consequences of things are, right? So I've been told that like when people drink and drive, when you get in the car, you know you could kill somebody. You just don't care.
2: Hmm.
1: This somehow like I'll call like dulls the sense of responsibility in somebody's heart and mind, right? Whereas when you keep in step with the spirit, you, it, it, usually the way the spirit is going to lead you is in working through your conscience to make you more, more focused on the meaning of something and its consequence. So you, be, you begin to look at the world the opposite of the way that, as when you're half drunk. You're, you're looking at the world in such a way as like you see its consequence, you see its meaning, you see where this is going, you see what's going to happen, and you know what the spirit wants to ha- make happen for the good, and then you're kind of trying to keep in step with that. As opposed to not caring, not really being being personally conscientiously involved, not really caring what the outcomes are going to be. And so then acting in accordance with what the Bible calls the flesh, that is the inner desires that are rooted in worldliness, mm-hmm. right? And so it's the opposite of giving into the flesh. It's living by the spirit. It's also caring about what matters as opposed to not caring about what matters. Um, and so, and sometimes it will include a certain kind of sense of leading.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But a very few people actually consistently feel like they know what the Holy Spirit as a person is saying to them as a person. Mm-hmm. Even the people who feel like they have heard the voice of God th- that, that is inside their minds, like, like a certain message occurs to them in their intuitive mind. Um, oftentimes they don't, one, they're not sure it's God. But then two, even when they are pretty sure it's God, it doesn't happen that often.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Most of the time you have a sense of conviction in your conscience. You're like, I should do X. And you know it's true. What the Bible says, that's keeping in step with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Because the, the concept of keeping in step with the Spirit in the book of Ephesians appears to be a continual thing. It's, all, it's, it's happening all the time, right? And so it's not God speaking to you. It's, it's you, your conscience being spiritually aligned with Christ in such a way as that the Spirit is working through your conscience to draw you towards the good in each improvisational step of your life as you're working through it in real time. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to stay in step with the spirit. And that is in that improvisational kind of behavior. It's different than just knowing good and bad mm-hmm. because it's, it's something you're doing in real time. So like I used to sp- I used to play a lot of basketball and um, we used to do a lot of drills and training for basketball. Mm-hmm. And it was like a very controlled environment. I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I was making no choices. I dribbled, shot the layup, I threw the pass. I did the thing. But when you get in a basketball game, All those drills prepare you like virtue prepares you for life, but it doesn't literally tell you what to do in the improvisational outworking of the game itself. You're dribbling down the court. Should you dribble to the basket? Should you pass to that person? Should you wait for the play to develop? Should you shoot the ball? Like What should you do? There's Mm -hmm. all kinds of choices in front of you and you have to improvisationally read the situation and make a choice.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: That improvisational work that is similar to the jazz musician, you're playing along with a chord you kind of know what's happening, but you're actually improving and making a new experience in the moment. Again, that gets us back to the idea of romance, right? You're, you're like, you're working out something meaningful in the moment based yeah. on something deeper like virtue. But what matters is what you're doing right this second and the choice you're making that maybe another person wouldn't make the same decision. But you're the steward that's operating in management of this moment, right? And it matters. Yeah. And so you improv, you keep in step with the spirit.
0: This is, like, it's bringing back memories for me of the frustration that I had as, a like, growing up in the church and then getting to my teenage years and really wanting to be serious about following Christ, but feeling really frustrated because I felt like I didn't have the background to improvise. Like, there were so many choices and decisions and judgments that I had to make, and I kept reading the Bible, and I'm like, it's not telling me what to do. I don't know what to do. Just tell me what to do. And I, it was like, I just... I didn't know him long enough and deep enough yet in order to be able to read those situations. And it reminds me of like, I've been married for two years now. um, And I feel some ways about my husband that way of like, I wish I just knew you better. Yeah. That like, I could just know what you wanted in this situation. And it wouldn't be so much work right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that your marriage is probably a lot more like most people's relationship with God, being that you married cross culturally mm-hmm. and even cross linguistically. Like, English is not your husband's heart language.
0: Right. You know?
1: And so, like, there's a bunch of translation,
0: mm-hmm. like, in addition to just
1: getting to know each other and, like, different perceptions. And I think that, yeah, it takes a lot of time to really keep in step with the Spirit. But that's why pursuing the mind of Christ is number two.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you have to pursue the mind of Christ, you have to know your God. Because other, if you do, then it's like dancing with somebody. If you know them really well and you know the steps they take, you can do it. And if you don't, it's tough,
2: man.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: yeah. that's why. That's what the pursuit of the mind of Christ is so critical.
0: Right, and it's it's a, it just it takes time. It takes time to get to know a person, yeah. and it takes time to get to know the infinite God. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's, there's just yeah. no shortcuts to it. There's no cheat code. Right. Um,
1: Right, but it's encouraging in the sense that it still can get better every day than it was. Right, you know,
0: and it's a pleasure to you know it's it's a pleasure to know him more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, so in um in the third part of the book, you talk about how to pursue substance, and you describe the first step as sort of welcoming the ordinary, and you give. Solomon, King Solomon, as an example, who, of course, is most famous for having access to every type of luxury, every type of novelty in the world, but said that chasing the extraordinary and the pleasurable only brought him misery and meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. So like, why is that dynamic true, that we feel things are most meaningless and miserable when we're sitting in abundance?
1: Yeah. Um, the main reason for Solomon, one of the things he said was that he talks about, like, building up palaces and cities and gardens and all these kinds of things. And it says it says about him that when he was doing the things, they were like the delight of his heart. He was actually having a great time. But then it says later, as he completes the stuff and then he surveys it, that is, he looks over it all and says, these are my accomplishments he actually didn't find it very gratifying. He found it very, very miserable and depressing. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's actually, um, a certain number of employment studies have shown this, that, um, when you hear you're going to have more money in your account, it's exciting. Or like the, but, but the belief that you might get a promotion or that you might be an executive someday is really driving. And then when you become it, it's really not that gratifying.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, um, yeah it's 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 um it's strange like that, right, and so what Solomon says is that in doing the work the ordinary work day in and day out in in trying to provide flourishing and create things that that was really gratifying. but when he wanted the thing to be an end in itself, when he wanted to build a palace and say, this is gonna be my legacy for you know when I make this people are gonna remember me forever that that really didn't do it, right He realized that like it's all gonna crumble, it's all gonna fall apart, everyone's gonna die, none of this is gonna last
2: mm-hmm.
1: And, and, but he says that the thing that's interesting about that was, is that, that God has put eternity in the hearts of men and women that like, there's something about us that, that long for that, even though God has intentionally quote, made everything beautiful in its time, meaning that things are beautiful and then they fade, mm-hmm. but we want them to last forever, but even though they can't. And what Solomon argues in chapter three is that that is a conundrum that forces us to revere God,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that either you'll learn to revere God. And then you'll actually enjoy your toil. That is, you can embrace the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Or you will want it to last forever, see that it's not going to, and you'll be miserable and Mm -hmm. feel like life is meaningless. It's just a vapor.
0: So you related ordinary with the idea of toil. Can you expand what is, I mean, in this context, what do you really mean by ordinary? What does that look like for us?
1: That life is filled with repetitions and responsibilities, essentially, and Mm -hmm. rhythms. And that the repetition of those things that that it functions in a rhythm and a repetition is part of the healthy human life that we do. A, we do a lot of things over and over again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that by embracing that as the nature of human life, it's actually good. And you can actually take pleasure in things, even if you do them 10,000 times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you don't do that, what happens is you become miserable and you feel like life is meaningless. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and you, I've I've seen this with with like mothers who like work in the workplace and then they are holding a baby every single day. They change the baby. They feed the baby. They I mean there's in some ways there's very little as boringly repetitious as having a baby. Maybe working mm-hmm. on an assembly line in a chicken plant or something, right? How do like how do you like, how <laughs> if do you... you did
0: it twenty four seven? Right,
1: right. My, my like my wife does is a chaplain at a chicken plant. Like mm-hmm. they make the chicken wings and the chicken fingers that everybody eats, right? But people, they stand at that line and they're just like watching chicken wings go past them. They're watching mm. chicken fingers go past them for 12 hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like how do, you, how do you enjoy that toil? Right. right. How do you not get burned out on that? And it's tough. Right. So I, I think that it's by, by believing that the ordinary thing you're doing is worth doing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that really is what your life is for. Mm-hmm. That you're not missing out on something you should be doing instead. That's all really, but that's all really difficult because what worldliness says is, don't you want to consume more?
2: Right.
1: Don't you want a better position as a consumer? Don't you want to go on a nicer vacation? Don't you want to drive a nicer car? Don't you want to do something that's more interesting? And mm-hmm. the answer is, of course you do. Right? So embracing the ordinary is super important and fundamental. I mean, this is one of the reasons why a lot of people have just basic things undone at their house, mm-hmm. but they still have time to watch TV two and a half hours every night. <laughs> right. Right. Because watching TV is more fun than shoveling the driveway because it creates a, it creates a new story that's exotic and different and it tickles the fancy of um, of delicacy inside of us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And instead of turning to our role and responsibility to embrace the ordinary and make sure that our garden is well kept. We actually st- we step away from our stewardship to like indulge ourselves in the fancy of something that isn't part of the rhythms and responsibilities of our lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So listening, to- I'm not saying
1: I'm not saying that that leisure isn't also one of the repetitions of our lives, and it can be right. participating in stories and like watching TV or something. But I'm just saying it is also a handy escape, right? And diversion.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that listening listening to us, someone could get the mis like fall prey to the misconception that God is against pleasure or novelty or excitement, stimulation. Um, but I mean, he invented those things. So yeah. in the book, you use the image of apple thieves versus like caretakers of an orchard. Can you mm-hmm. expand on that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the quote is, God is not against pleasure and meaning. He invented them. But he will not allow us to become apple thieves when he has made us to grow orchards. Mm -hmm. And The point there is is that um, there are certain things God has put in the world. And we can either have a relationship of exploitation to those things or or a dynamic of cultivation with those things. And what we're tempted to and what we're eager for oftentimes and what worldliness tells us is the real way to be happy is for us to just take them, for us to exploit them. Um, to treat them like an object, like they don't have a purpose and meaning in themselves. And what it tends to lead to is what scripture calls sin. That is, we tend to misuse things and so damage them. And when we when we do that, it's it's like it breaks everything, right? Um, when what God wants us to do is in, enter into the cultivation of things in the world in such a way as to grow the apples that then we will eat and be mm-hmm. happy with, you know?
0: And have some to um, share. Yeah. Yeah, that contrast of exploitation versus cultivation feels really powerful to me. Um in just I think there're so many applications for every area of life. Um,
1: there's there are a lot of ways in which human beings can um, can come up with a reason why it's okay to steal. Mhm. I mean, that's one of the reasons why one of the 10 commandments is thou shall not steal. Mm-hmm. And then in the Torah, God explains a number of different ways we can steal from people. You know, um, yeah. And, yeah. and that's why, that's why sacrificial love is so fundamental. Right. Because if you don't see yourself as somebody who is pouring yourself out and sacrificing for others, you want to be more productive than you are someone who uses things up. Mm-hmm. Um and and that's why Jesus said, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive.
2: Mm-hmm. To
1: produce an abundance and be able to give to someone in need is more blessed than it is to be able to even receive something, even though you didn't steal it, you still get it. It's still better to be the producer,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because of the dignity that you have in being like God as a creator, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's just a different attitude. And when you and then when you want to be productive in a creator, that's going to lead you into productive rhythms and mm-hmm. embracing responsibility and the sorts of things that lead to productivity. You
0: know? Yeah. I feel like that idea of cultivating is a great segue into the next two chapters of your book, which are about escaping diversion and embracing discipline, because these are two things that without that, it really were really hindered in our ability to cultivate anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, go ahead
1: yeah no, I really agree with that. I think I, th- I think that um part of consumerism is getting people's attention,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right. You have to get people's attention to get people to buy things. and you have to divert people's attention if you don't want them to see things. Mm-hmm. So enter like politics or something, right? And so there's a lot of energy being expended in our modern culture to both divert us to things and divert us f- to divert us from things. Right. And one of the things we've learned about the human mind is is that the more we engage in being diverted rather than focusing our mind on something that we choose to pay attention to, the more that becomes a mental habit for us. And the easier it is to continue to do what we have chosen to do. Mm-hmm. That is to be diverted. And so, um, diversion, one of the things I, I've written in the margin of my copy of Substances, diversion plus habit equals bondage. Mm-hmm. Diversion plus habit equals bondage. Mm-hmm. The more of a habit any diversion is, the more reflexive or immediate we just do it without even thinking until it's kind of like a slavery because we're not thinking anymore that we're just doing it. And those patterns in our lives are structured by how God has created us as beings with with nervous systems. So the good news is if you pursue godliness and you build up these habits of discipline, the easier they will be over time. Mm -hmm. But if you allow yourself to be diverted, the easier it is to stay diverted over time and the harder is to break those patterns.
0: Right, and those patterns are especially hard to break because so many of the things that um, we interact with are designed to suck in our attention. Mm-hmm. Like there's they're scientific research and study built into yeah. these programs that are designed, they know they know how our brains work better than mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. And so they're like, hacking our systems. Um, and yeah. it takes a lot for us to to push against that, to discipline ourselves, to step away from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, up until may, maybe 20 years ago, the only way everybody had always known to severely hack the mind of half of the human race was the was the young female body. Right. Like it was always <laughs> I mean, like, for thousands of years, yeah, for thousands of years, people have known, hey, um, take some clothes off of a young, attractive female and you're going to get the attention of half of the human race. Mm mm-hmm. um, in the last 20 or 30 years, that's been expanded to a lot of other ways in which um, we can be hacked. I mean, I, it's also true that probably appealing to people's anger and fear and rhetoric has always been a thing people have mm-hmm. been using. So there's other examples too. But, but the idea that like you know, social media applications have been designed for very specific short-term gratifications that affect certain re- chemicals released in our brain and all that, it's, it's like they're literally designed to... Um, addict us and mm-hmm. we have seen that happening in the 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 level of the capacity of people to, to deny it or to even admit it but do nothing about it right mm-hmm. there i was i was listening to um our youth pastor talk about how addictive phones are mm-hmm. and there was this row of girls that were across from me like they were like the freshman or sophomore girls our youth group and they all had their phones out and they were looking at it and you could, they were doing that like every second up thumb flip thing right so you know that they weren't like reading an article. Like they were they're, <laughs> or they're very through, fast
0: readers. <laughs>
1: yeah. Like they're flipping through Snapchat or Instagram, right? Right. And you're just kind of like, and then so he said, "Who would like to be like free of this like compulsion to like just be flipping around on their phones?" And this one girl without looking up raised <laughs> her hand. <laughs> and to her credit, like 2 seconds later she like turned off her phone and put it in her pocket. Yeah. Um, I think she had it out again before the end of the sermon though. Sure. And I asked those girls, I was on a retreat with them. I was like, Hey, do you guys think that you're like, you taking out your phone? looking at it? Do you think it's a compulsion or do you think it's like a deliberative act? And they were like, Oh, it's like, we don't use our phones that much. It's like, like it's like, we're using them. They're not using us. And I'm like, Hmm. I think you might be in denial.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and that's true for like video stuff. That's true for just like a lot of men just watch YouTube videos reflexively without thinking about it there's also like this substitutionary nature. So I I, I walked out, I I walked into my room. My my son was playing a game. It was a farm simulation where he was clicking buttons on his keyboard to cut a log with a steel chainsaw. (laughs) And I was like, son, you literally, you realize I literally have logs outdoors (laughs) and a steel chainsaw. Like you could literally cut them with a real chainsaw. And he was like, yeah, yeah, but that's not really the point of the game. I was like, that's all you're doing right now in the game. But, you know, that kind of thing, I'm just kind of like. Right. And I I think the reason why that matters to me a lot is I think that a lot of these virtual diversions um, not only create a kind of bondage for us, but they suck up all of our time. And that time is supposed to be used to love. Mm -hmm. And so parents aren't talking to their kids. They're not making memories. They're not helping their kids grow. They're not doing productive things. They're not caring about people in need. They're just... Looking at things and right. then saying really unkind things to each other
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's sad, yeah, to see people reduced to that. It makes me think of that movie The Matrix from years ago, where like people are in little pods and they're really just experiencing a virtual reality mm-hmm. and i'm I'm not so sure that we're all that far away when people mm-hmm. are looking at their phones like two to four thousand times a day
0: mm-hmm. yeah. right, and then you know you note that one of the scary things about it is not just what we're looking at and what we're feeding ourselves, but what we're not seeing because we're always looking at this other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you think there are less noisy things that are much more beautiful and important and deserving of our attention, Um, namely God, but also, you know, like family moments that you're not seeing or the needs of other people around you that you just don't have eyes to see because you're so distracted by this other thing.
1: Yeah. And in personal reflection and more right. than seeing that, seeing
0: yourself, pursuing, <laughs> also...
1: pursuing God, like prayer. Right. And the sorts of things that are the pursuit of God are the least diverting things in the world. Mm-hmm. They bring all your problems to the front of your mind, all your weaknesses, everything means so much. Like it's the least diverting thing. But mm-hmm. there is, um, in most cases, obviously there's a certain kind of legalism and false religion that can be very diverting, but that's not what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, I don't remember what I was watching recently, but one of the characters, um, he was waiting for someone to come, and he like didn't have anything to, to distract him, and he was like, "Where were you? Like, I was waiting so long. I started thinking about like awful things, like why I exist, and like I never <laughs> want to do that again. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't leave me like that." Yeah. Um yeah. so when it comes to embracing discipline, what is it that we really need to remember? Um or let me back up. Um in in the previous part you talk about the rule of permissibility and you tie mm-hmm. it to First Corinthians six. So yeah. how can this guide the types of things that we should like put our attention towards?
1: yeah so so that that section is about what to what do we need to flee Mm -hmm. like what what diversions we need to flee and so the the you have to understand the quadruple threat of current diversions especially electronic ones because they're ever present they're like in your pocket they offer immediate service you don't have to wait at all there's an infinite variety and they're varying they're designed to be engrossing right Mm -hmm. um so in first Corinthians 6 it talks about in the context of first Corinthians 6 it's talking about um, sex, and it's talking about particularly sex with prostitutes for the, for the most part, or illicit sex. And um, the Apostle Paul says, okay, imagine you were, because in the Corinthians, we're like, aren't were like are not we is not this within the realm of permissibility? He's like, okay, let's just pretend that's true, okay? So, like, just, just for, like a, like, a thought experiment. Imagine there wasn't a direct command against it, and it wasn't obvious that you were taking the temple of the Holy Spirit and uniting it with a prostitute. Let's just say that wasn't true for a minute.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What questions should we ask ourselves? And, and the first one, he says, is, is, is it beneficial? Like, is, does the thing do some good or mm-hmm. not, right? That is, is it tr- it's for your true good? And then the second is, is it constructive? That is, is it for the true good of others? Mm-hmm. And then will it master you? Like, if you handle it, is it going to end up handling and controlling you? Mm-hmm. And then does it align with who you are in Christ or who you're becoming in Christ? And I, I think that that, and I'm, obviously 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't say it quite that way, but when you study through it, those are the main ideas. I think if you look at diversions and you're like, this isn't beneficial. It's not constructive. It does get a hold of me, and it really doesn't help me become who I want to be in Christ. Then you can say, okay, well, what does, hmm. what is beneficial for you? What is constructive for others in love? What, um, what causes Jesus to be more your master, or you to be in Christ more the master of yourself, as opposed to in less? And then yeah. what really aligns you with who Christ is? And I think that it's figuring out the pursuit of love, pursuing the mind of Christ developing virtuous freedom
2: mm-hmm.
1: keeping a step with the spirit right
2: mm-hmm.
1: i think one of the things i did in the book is instead of talking about the 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 spiritual disciplines i thought people should engage in i i didn't write up a, a chapter on that because there's plenty of books about spiritual disciplines what practices you can engage in to grow in your faith in in god and in your devotion instead what i did was i spent a chapter talking about what discipline is
2: mm-hmm.
1: right and the first and the first thing i argue in the first few pages is that it's one of the things that makes us so profoundly different from other mammals. Hmm. That if you compare two ostriches or two lions, their capacities are going to be very similar. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you compare your average Joe with a Navy SEAL or a concert pianist or a master woodworker or somebody who spent a lot of time in discipline, they have changed so much through the work of discipline and mastery hmm. that they're almost unrecognizable. Like there, there's, there is no comparison between mm-hmm. them in terms of the quality and quantity of what they're capable of doing. And so um, so I think it's important to recognize that that difference, the difference of discipline, the difference mm-hmm. discipline can make is enormous for human beings. And there's, there's a lot of research in economics and in psychology that's come out recently. My recently, I mean, like in the last 15 or 20 years, where they have basically said, yeah, you can't really expect people to do th- great things. Mm-hmm. They're just not going to. And on one level, I think that that's true. And on another level, I think it's a terrible self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. that we're making true. Um, human beings are capable of it, of incredible things if we will exert discipline upon ourselves, which is which is hard to do. especially hard to start, mm-hmm. but it can be right. And so, in the book, I, I I break that down into four parts and a little bit about how you pursue each one.
0: Yeah. Do you want to go through those now, or sure. okay? So the first one you describe, um, is vigilance. You walk us through that briefly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So, so, so vigilance just starts with being, having a knowledge and an awareness of what your enemies really are with constant attention to how they would naturally advance and, and where you're, you're most vulnerable. So if you're trying to escape diversion, one thing you're gonna be like is look, if I sit down in front of the TV at eight, I will be there at 1120. Right. Right. That's just so like, I just know it's going to happen. So what am I going to do? So that doesn't happen. I don't sit now for some, of maybe I don't sit in front of the TV to begin with. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you might say, if I start my day and I haven't worked out by nine, I'm not gonna, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or if I, if I, if I get dressed, if I leave my bedroom with the, with the age my kids are, and I don't read my Bible mm-hmm. quietly in my bedroom before I walk out of it, I won't read my Bible today.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: There's certain things where like you've got, you've got to understand the dynamic of the situation that you're in so that you know what you have to be aware of.
0: You've kind of got like you've got to get one step. step ahead of your brain. Right. Like if I have ice cream in my fridge in my freezer at home, it will be gone within a week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that the di- so it, within your brain and soul resides both the flesh and the work of the spirit and conscience. And so what you're trying to get is ahead of your flesh. Right. Right. How 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 worldliness in your flesh that your flesh agrees with is spurred on by the temptation of devils. Like, how do you see that before it happens and do what is practically necessary to avoid it?
0: Mm -hmm. I think one of the metaphors that you used in a sermon years ago was that, like, the gate where we don't guard will be the gate where we're invaded. Mm -hmm. And, um, And that one has stuck with me. And just thinking about, like... There's always going to be an attack somewhere where you're least expecting it. So you really like you have to be vigilant um, because you will fall somewhere if you're not Mm -hmm. paying attention. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And all of us are weak in more than one area. Right. So it's never going to be the case where like you're just vigilant about one thing.
0: No. And it's never going to be the same thing consistently. You know, there are some things that we consistently fall back on, but then something else is going to pop up when we're not paying attention. And then, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and the second one maybe, and it, one... may, be, oh, and it may
1: be because you're actually having success. Right. Like you're really vigilant about one thing and you really are growing in that area, pre- growing in the virtues that keep you safe in that area. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is happening partly because you are doing well. And that's right. progress. Right. But it's also frustrating.
0: Yeah. The second one is brutality. How would you define that in this context? Yeah. Some people prefer
1: the word ferocity, but I want the more (laughs) offensive word on purpose.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And brutality is the ability and the ferocity to deliver the full killing blow against the proper adversary without hesitation or reserve. So if it's your job to kill something, you better do it. Mm -hmm. And in in scripture, there's a number of cases where what we need to do is put in the metaphor of not us dying, but us killing
2: Mm.
1: and not other people. But sin in the flesh, like the, that is the indwelling sin, that which is in us, our desire for sin, our desire for indiscipline, our desire for diversion, our desire to not care about the mind of Christ or the things of God, right? That thing we need to kill. Mm-hmm. And John Owen said in one of his books about sin, if, if, if you stop, if you're, if you're beating something to death, if you stop hitting before it stops living, you've only done half your work and mm-hmm. your work is useless um you have to have a kind of ferociousness and even brutality toward the right kinds of things
0: who was it lack
1: of that Mm -hmm. leaves you utterly um just like utterly at the hands of your enemies
0: yeah who was it who said i think be killing sin or it will be killing you yeah that's owen that's the same work Mm -hmm. yeah um the next one you have is training
2: yeah
1: yeah. So, so in, in um Hebrews 12, I think it is, there's a section that says our, our fathers disciplined us and it was painful for a while, but we respected them for it and so on. And it talks about, but there's says it says, receive all, essentially it says, receive all hardship as discipline. But what the context really means there is something like training, like the discipline of training yourself. So like when I train for elk hunts, one of the reasons why I like elk hunting is I have to go through a few months of kind of strict training to get myself for higher altitudes and carrying a lot of weight and longer days and thinner air and all that kind of stuff. And so I have to like beat my body and make it my slave anew every year to do that. And and I'm not hurting myself on purpose, but but what I'm doing is I'm using the hardship of training to grow stronger. Mm-hmm. And what scripture teaches is that all of the difficulties of our lives, all of the things people do to us, all of the all the ways we face injustice, all of that is, can be received as training. Now, it doesn't mean that, that God is making it happen so that you can suffer. What it means is that the our attitude should be like that of Jesus, that everything that we suffer, even what's done to us unjustly by wicked men, we can receive it like God is training us and God will use it to train us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Even stuff that should never have happened to us. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And so I think having that constant structured preparation. Because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But like if you say, well, what I have to be ready for is what all the stuff that's already happened to me. That's false. Mm-hmm. You have to be ready for everything that might happen to you, reasonably speaking. And training means you need to be ready for more than just what you've already faced, but for the things that you could face.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, yeah. and, and, you have to, and training is the opposite of just being anxious. Some people just open their mind a little bit. They know a lot more could happen to them and they just feel anxious about it. Training is actually preparing yourself. Mm-hmm. for a multiplicity of future act- of f- future situations
0: yeah i think this is something i relate to when i feel like my like my spiritual health my devotional life is kind of lagging it's kind of in a rut i'm not really i don't feel myself growing or learning a lot and i i can justify to myself thinking like i have enough for what i'm doing right now like mm-hmm. i can handle my daily stuff but then what I've like learned through a couple of decades is like there will always be one thing that's going to come up and you're going to find yourself unprepared for it and you're going to regret it because mm-hmm. like there's going to be that one person who needs something from you and you just don't have anything to give. Yeah. And like, what a tragedy it is in that moment when you had the opportunity um, to speak truth in life or to, to lift someone up, but you were too weak to do it. And that moment passes you by and it's gone and you can never have it back. Um, and what a tragedy it is not to be ready for those unexpected moments when they come. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to get in our like rut of like, I'm doing fine. I have what I need right now. I don't need to grow that much more.
1: But Yeah, one of the sad but also encouraging things about the world is that for all of the abundance that we've created with economic prosperity, one of the things that has always been in scarcity on planet earth is human character and mm. godliness and so whenever you exhibit it and grow in it what's going to happen is god is going to open up a wider sphere for you of either leadership or opportunity or opportunity to love and so you're always going to be god's always going to be using you on the outer edge of your capacity so mm-hmm. if you continually are spiritually training god will use you for things right, right? and so either it's the, like so the, the, the negative way to put it is the way you put it where it's like you won't be ready mm-hmm The positive way is like, as you grow and are more disciplined and more capable and vigilant and brutal about handling your own sin and actually growing in godliness, your capacity as a steward grows Mm -hmm. and what God can do through you increases dramatically,
0: Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, In the last chapter, which is called belonging to the formational community, you argue that culture forms us and we have to decide what culture to immerse ourselves in. Mm -hmm. You want to talk more about that?
1: Yeah. And that kind of connects with the fourth thing we didn't talk about, which was cooperation. So the right. four pursuits of discipline are vigilance, brutality, training, cooperation, cooperation mm-hmm. is enhancing our potential in all situations by cultivated teamwork. Mm-hmm. And so the f- last chapter is belonging to the formational community. And that's based on this idea that I learned from Tim Keller, but it's existed forever, which is we are deformed in community and we are reformed in community mm-hmm. that the people you eat with will affect you more than your ideas and so on. And so, um, so the first thing is, is that you have to decide that you love the community Christ has created, the thing we call the church, and that you love it because you love the people that make it up and the God who is its head. It's Christ and the spirit that binds it together and the offices that build it up and all of that. You have to love it deeply. But then you have to recognize that you're not going to be connected to the church for the majority of your life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For the majority of most people's life, they're operating in the world, right? In, or in creation. Not within the sub community of the church, and so how do you spending two to five hours in the church in a week, let's say, or even if you have forty minute quiet times every day, that still puts your quote time with God explicitly like under ten hours a week
2: mm-hmm.
1: how How does that really form you enough for everything else right and mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the questions we have to ask, like what kind of church, what kind of relationships, what sort of immersion, what sort of connection to the formational community should we have? so that we could be prepared in just a few hours a week to live in godliness all the rest of the hours a week when we're in the world and when we're sent to the world and we're living in creation doing what we've been called to do.
0: Mm -hmm. So kind of a quantity over quality over quantity type of thing. Like who's your community? Like what's the nature of that relationship that you have? How are they building you up? That obviously Mm -hmm. like more time is good, but time alone isn't going to do it.
1: Right. And so, so some things that I talk about in the chapter are that we, you have to go to church and be part of these things in a really disciplined way mm-hmm. so that you're making them every week, right? There's a lot of people that go to church once a week or, or like once a month or twice a month. And I just don't think that that's going to be sufficient for right. a long-term formation and perseverance. The, the second thing relative to that is that you have to make the experiences more immersive, right? Like in the sense that like, get around people, be close, talk about real stuff, listen intently to what they're saying really interact deeply open your heart to the experience that you're having and so on a lot of people don't go to church regularly and then they're relatively unengaged and closed off while there Mm -hmm. partly because they're afraid that things are going to be asked of them that they don't want to give like volunteering forever in the children's ministry or something like that (laughs) but you you have to like if you're going to get what you can get you have to really be immersive emotionally and personally and then the third thing is to increase the amount of time you spend in those things is really good that's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why we say If you go to church and you also go to a small group instead of growing twice as fast you tend to grow four times as fast Hmm. because having those two opportunities working together tends to do more and so increasing the amount of time you spend in the body of christ is great and then making sure that you're maximally receptive in the spaces of godly culture and maximally unreceptive in worldliness so -hmm. you have to you have to intentionally in a disciplined way try to be unreceptive when you're in the world and it's like beating up on your faith Mm-hmm. And just be like, yeah, I'm not going to take this in. I'm not going to be intimidated by this. I'm not going to be scared by it. I'm not going to, because my home is with the Lord and my people are the people of His church. Mm-hmm. And then when you're at church, you need to be intentionally, maximally, emotionally receptive when you're there um, so that worldliness doesn't dominate you. If you do that, then you can go to church for, or be among the people of God for a, a relatively smaller amount of the week and still have enough impact on you that it's helping to form you to prepare yourself and discipline.
2: Mm-hmm
1: to embrace the ordinary, to pursue those four marks or pursuits of godliness and to decisively turn away from worldliness and towards
0: Christ. Right. I mean, so this book came out in 2017. Um, I'm just thinking about this, this issue of community in 2021. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we continue to pursue this in the age of virtual services and zoom small groups and quarantines and all of these things um what advice can you give to people in this moment
1: yeah i i think i would say don't let yourself fall into the lie that the direct personal contact of relationships with other people is optional for human flourishing it's not it's essential Mm-hmm. And so whether you're prone to fall into the progressivist fallacy of saying, well, everything's going to be done in the government on the national level, and I just have to vote the right way, and that's that's my participation in the community, or whether it's the consumeristic fallacy of just really wanting to buy stuff and enjoy things rather than subjects, right? Everything's an object, nothing's a subject, you know, knowing an other person deeply. Um, there's all kinds of different like, sub-fallacies to these sorts of things, but you have to you have to understand that like, God has made us to love one another. hmm and so I don't want to I'm not going to say that like, you know, virtual church is always bad or you shouldn't have any Zoom meeting or whatever. But like for, for example in this case like you and I are recording this on Zencaster so like we're not with each other right wow. now. But I can see you, you can see me and we know each other enough that like we can relate pretty freely over video because we we're we have a we have like a multi-year relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if I was entering in a small group with people I didn't know and it was just starting and it was over Zoom, that would be much more insufficient. Sure. Does that make sense? I it's much easier to counsel somebody, for example, that I've known for a while and I've counseled before as their pastor over a Zoom like that, like this, mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who I'm I'm like talking to them for the first time and I can't see their whole body and so on. So it, it, in some ways, it's kind of relative. I don't want to say like, you know, only if you're holding somebody's hand does it matter as human contact, but right. um, there is a sense in which being directly in the presence of other people is fundamental to human flourishing mm-hmm. and Christian ministry, loving and caring for others. And the more we could pull that away from consumerism, using things up, being immersed in screens and so on, the better, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so, like, I'll take going to a movie with my kids if that's the only way I can be around them today. Sure. But I don't pretend that's the same thing as playing ping pong with my daughter. Right. And that's not as good as talking to my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing like where you're at and what what you're doing is actually doing, how immersive is this? Like those things Mm -hmm. we just said before, how immersive is this, how emotionally open am I to this or how closed am I to it? Mm -hmm. And how does that affect us? I think that we need to just, I mean, Jesus like was very gritty with people. Mm -hmm. He was always with his disciples. He was in the midst of people. They were crowding him. They were all around him. He was touching and healing their physical bodies. He was very personal. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't normal for teachers. Look, that's that was that was, was semi scandalous about Jesus. Most teachers were rhetoricians. They met in buildings with a few students that could pay, and they would speak to people from a distance. They didn't ha- they didn't touch people, and people didn't touch them. Um, Jesus was very tacti- tactile. Mm. He was where he could smell people's pheromones; like, he was right there. Right. And I so in, in that sense, I I would say if you if you can go see a person for coffee, do that. Yeah. Rather than just talk on the phone, if you can be at church rather than watch it virtually, do that. Mm-hmm. but if you can't then watch it, that's better than nothing, right? Like do whatever the best thing you can do is, right. but remember that in this moment of time, there is there are all these natural mechanisms pulling us apart relationally, mm-hmm. and so we're going to have to escape those diversions and embrace the disciplines of bringing ourselves together intentionally, yeah,
0: just as you were listing those examples of things you could do with your kids um. I was thinking one of the things at High Point that we've been trying to grow in that hasn't necessarily come very naturally to our community is like having fun and celebrating together also. <laughs> um, and I was just, as a note, like talking together is a- wonderful, but if you only ever talk and you never play ping pong, you know, that mm-hmm. would also be lacking something. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And part, I mean, part of friendship is just finding stuff you like to do together. Right. It's okay to pick some of the people you're going to fellowship with in your church based on them doing stuff you like mm-hmm. and doing those things together. You know, like I take out some guys in the boat fishing. We talk, we have time together, but we like fishing. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. I don't think.
0: But if you, you know. only ever played ping pong and you never talked to your kids, then mm-hmm. you'd be missing something really crucial. Um, so one of the, th- big takeaways, I think, for our community, maybe even in the language that we still use after going through Mm -hmm. substance was this idea of gracious striving. I don't remember if that was language we used a lot before this book or if it came out of that, but um, can you kind of, let's end with this idea of gracious striving.
1: Yeah. So that's the two word thing we decided to use. So there's a quote from the book where I say, I say, receiving substance is a sweaty business. Effortful receiving is the very essence of pursuing spiritual substance. So that phrase, receiving substance is sweaty mm-hmm. or a lot of work. And to engage in effortful receiving, mm-hmm. right? Receiving is like if that's not supposed to be effortful, it's supposed to be. And so we get this one of the places that this is laid out in the Bible is in Second Peter chapter one where it says in the first verses. His divine power that is God's in Christ has given us everything we need for life and godliness through his own glory and goodness, right? Everything's a gift. He's given it all to us, right? And then chapter in verse five, it says, therefore, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness to goodness, knowledge, and so on. So so it's like, because God has given us everything, that should motivate us to work really hard to receive his gifts, right? Mm -hmm. Because what he gives us is meant to work itself into our being in terms of human character, And that doesn't just like zap in out of nowhere by just like this like strange spiritual work. But we actually have to like walk through the process of experiencing the change ourselves. That is, we have to make every effort to participate in that transformation. And so on one level, we want to work as hard as we can. But on another level, we don't want to become legalists about we have to we have to understand that everything is by grace. It's all a gift. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that's one of the reasons why God uses metaphors of agriculture a lot in the Bible. Because, I mean, as a, as somebody who has gardened a good bit, um, I do a lot of work in my garden. Mm-hmm. I do a well, weed, I prepare, I fertilize, I prep, I trellis, I do all this work. But like there's something magical about biology, self-replicating and growing and all this kind of stuff that I have no, I don't even know how it works. I don't know how it happens. And it really is all the work of what produces the fruitfulness of my garden. Mm-hmm. And so my garden is in one sense, all of grace. Mm-hmm. It's all a gift. It's all Produced by DNA and microbes, and the dynamic of life functioning within the self-replicating properties of cells. But I still do a lot of work Mm -hmm. in order to bring it about. And and in some ways, that's how gracious striving works. We make every effort, and as we do the work that we can do, God is already preceding us and giving us what we need so that it would accomplish what He desires.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. So grace, grace produces activity and romance
0: yeah not
1: apathy and boredom and anxiety
0: yeah yeah i think that's a great place to end um If you are listening and you were not here with us when we went through the Substance series, or if you want to revisit it, you can go back. You can find the book on Amazon. It's still there in um, hardback or in Kindle versions. You can search Substance and then Nick's name, Nicola Gibson, will bring it up. And you can also, if you're listening, you know how to find the Engage and Quit podcast. So you can look back to episode 40 four zero, is where we started releasing episodes related to substance which include um, people reflecting on different concepts of substance and also we have sort of audiobook versions of mm-hmm. each chapter so if you yeah. want to hear the book read to you by a very proficient um, radio personality you can hear that as well um, and also you can find all the sermons on our YouTube channel starting from September of 2017 so those resources mm-hmm. are still. Available to you, and um, any last notes you want to make about this, Nick?
1: No, other than the book is available, and I really feel like if you've come to High Point since we did it in 2017,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the one of the best ways you can kind of get theologically on board and really understand what it is we're trying to do at High Point, other than like coming to explore and and, and like hearing the talk on that, is getting and reading this
2: book. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I, I also think it's a really good tool for discipling someone. Yep, you know, like sitting down and like working through it. So. Um, Lot, I put a lot of heart and soul into this book and handed it to in editing it. You were one of the main editors. and mm-hmm. um, I, I really think it's one of the best tools our church has produced.
0: Yeah. Um, so again, all those um, online resources are available for you. Um, I think the Kindle book last I saw was $4 and the um, hard copy is 9 If you want a hard copy and you the n- not n- that would be a hardship for you. I'm sure we can hook you up with a copy because um, mm-hmm. um, we really just want everyone in our community to be able to meditate on these ideas and grow through them with us. So um, I think that's it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip. If you like this episode, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with a friend. And if there's any questions that you have about today's topic Podcast or our previous episodes, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org or ideas for new episodes that you'd like us to cover. Otherwise, we will see you next time. podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast
1: at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage in Equipment.